We apologize to the listener of this tape, but for the first, and only for the first few minutes of the tape, there is a very slight hum in the background. This does clear after about two or three minutes. This is on the master recording. Now let's turn to the chapter we're going to read this evening, Matthew chapter uh, 3, from verse 11. I indeed baptize you in water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the garner, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to the Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John would have hindered him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? But Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffereth him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway from the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, and lo, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he afterward hungered. And the tempter came and said unto him, If thou art the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him into the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, And saith unto him, If thou art the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and on their hands they shall bear thee up, lest haply thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, Again it is written, Thou shalt not make trial of the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him unto an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And he said unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. To add one further (coughs) note or two to what we have said on the key to the gospel according to Matthew. We have spoken very much about the king and the kingdom and it's our relationship to it and the relationship uh, to the world and so on and so forth. Now I want this evening, without going over anything that has been thus far said, to add to it this. 
I think we should note that it is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, which is used exclusively in Matthew. This phrase is nowhere else found in the New Testament, in the other Gospels. It is found exclusively in Matthew. And he uses it some 33 times. Now, a study of the other Gospels will show that what they call the kingdom of God, Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven and that he does it deliberately. Now, of course, we can't spend this evening looking up all the various references, but there are just a, 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 um, a few examples. For instance, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time began Jesus to preach and to say, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Now, if you turn to the uh, passage in Mark, which records the same incident, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we read this, saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe in the gospel. So Mark um, gives us the same version, but instead of calling the kingdom of heaven, he calls it the kingdom of God. Now, if you turn back to Matthew, you will find in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, And he answered and said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now, if you turn over to Mark chapter 4 and verse 11, we read this. And he said unto them, Unto you is given uh, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all things are done in parables. Or again, the same uh, incident in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 10, and we read this. And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, if you read the context, you will discover it is all to do with the parable of the sower. So we are quite definite and clear, we can be quite dogmatic in saying this is the same incident. In Matthew it's called the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In Mark and in Luke it is called the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now this is quite deliberate. In other words, Matthew has deliberately used the term kingdom of heaven because he wants to put over to us something very special. He is really trying to emphasize the spiritual and heavenly nature of the kingdom. 
That's the thing that Matthew is seeking to present to us, the spiritual and heavenly nature of the kingdom. Now, you must remember, of course, that Matthew was particularly written to Jews, and the Jews had a traditional concept of the kingdom. It was all to do with the earth. It was all to do with things seen. It was a very earthly, soulish thing. Or even the disciples at the very end were still bothered about it. When are you going to restore uh, uh, the kingdom uh, to Israel? And so on. You see, the, 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 it was a deeply seated complex. And it was one of the hardest things for them to understand that the kingdom of God was a spiritual thing primary, primarily. It was a heavenly thing, primarily. Uh, this is what really the Gospel of Matthew uh, seeks to do for us. He points out that the king is a heavenly king. He is a spiritual king. He wants to point out to us that the throne of God is not a physical throne. It's a spiritual reality. It is an eternal reality. Just because it's not seen by us does not mean that it is not an absolute fact and reality. Because it is spiritual does not mean that it is less real, less factual, less literal than something physical. My dear friends, the throne of England is in fact less literal than the throne of God. The throne of God is absolutely factual, absolutely real. It's genuine. Now, this is the mentality we have. As soon as we start to think about spiritual things, heavenly things, we immediately waltz off into something mystic, ethereal, um, sort of abstract. You, you can't see it, you can't feel it, it's not concrete, it's not definite, it's not real, it's not really factual. It's a kind of never-never um, land. It's a kind of fairy tale land of dreams, of rosy imagination, far off. Now, we, of course, all rise up in horror at the thought that any of us should be subject to such uh, an approach. But it's inherent in us all. We talk about something um, um, literal, material, we believe in it. Flesh and blood, we believe in it if we can see it. But as soon as we start to speak about um, intangible, invisible things, well then immediately we start to think in terms of their being less real. Abstract somehow. Not concrete. Now Matthew is trying to tell us that the kingdom of God into which we have been born, the kingship of God which has been brought to us, this kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. It is a spiritual and heavenly kingdom, but nonetheless real, nonetheless factual, because it is spiritual and heavenly. What he's trying to tell us is this. It is not of the earth earthy. Now, if you get hold of that little phrase, that's the key to it. It is not of the earth 
earthy. All the other kingdoms that this world had known had been of the earth earthy, even the best of them. The greatest empires, the greatest thrones that this world had known had been of the earth earthy. Their origin is the earth. Their resources are earthy. Their, their, very, their very destiny is earthy. They have, they have come up and they have fallen down. But this kingdom that you and I have been brought into <laughs> by God's king is an eternal, a, a spiritual, and a heavenly kingdom. It's not the product of the flesh. It is not the product of the intelligence or the creativeness or the resources of the flesh. It doesn't belong to the realm of fallen man with all his ingenuity and all his clever uh, cleverness and all his, as it were, capacity. It doesn't belong to that realm, even the best of mankind. This kingdom belongs to another sphere. Its origin is somewhere else. Its resources are somewhere else. It is heavenly. It is out of heaven. It is spiritual. That is, it is by the Spirit, in the Spirit, through the Spirit, that this kingdom uh, is established and, uh, and, and expanded and reaches the goal that God has in <laughs> mind. Well, there we are. I think if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have it all summed up wonderfully in that great chapter upon um, resurrection. 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul. Now that's the characteristic of all of us. We're all from the first man Adam. And all the kingdoms of this world have come out of the first man Adam, even the British one. The whole lot have come out of the first man Adam. This all belongs to the realm of the soul. The first man Adam will became a living soul. The last Adam, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The kingdom of heaven, the spiritual kingdom life-giving spirit. This kingdom of God finds its origin in Christ, the last Adam, who is the life-giving spirit. That is, the origins, the resources are all within the person and life of God himself by the spirit. Now that's why we're told that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. You see, the second, the, the, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. This, this kingdom of God finds its original resources within the person of God by the spirit. Then, if we read on, we read this. Howbeit that is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. 
So all the kingdoms we have known have been natural kingdoms. Uh, then that which is spiritual. Now the everlasting and eternal kingdom of our God and of his Christ have come uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus to this world. That which is spiritual has come. The first man is of the earth, earthy. That is, the boundaries of that man is earth. The limitation of that man is earth. You see, he's trapped in a gilded cage. It's earth, and he's earthy. So because he's of the earth, he can never burst out from earthiness. He is trapped within earthiness. And you've only got to look at this world and its entertainment and its books and its advertisements to see that it is true in the simplest, most basic way that it is this man, the first man, is of the earth, earthy. He can't get away from it. He can't free himself from it. The second man is of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Now we go on. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. That means if you've been born into the kingdom of heaven, then you've got a heavenly life and a heavenly nature. It may be very small and maybe not very apparent at present, but it's there by the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, then heaven's inside of you. And if the Spirit of Christ is in you, then the life of heaven is in you. The very, the very person of God is resident within you. You are of heaven. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, so, we, so shall we also bear the image of the heavenly. Now it's all summed up in the next verse. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There you are. That's the gospel according to Matthew. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, we have got to be born of the second man. We have got to belong to the last Adam. We've got to know something of that life in us so that we are born into the kingdom of God. It's not flesh and blood that... Uh, that um, uh, that inherits the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So that which is born of the spirit inherits the kingdom of God. Now this is really what um, Matthew means by this wonderful phrase, the kingdom of heaven. He is setting before us the spiritual and heavenly nature of the kingdom of God. But I must go a step further and say this. That does not mean that it will never be concretely expressed. That that kingdom of heaven remains in a kind of sphere up there. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that somehow it remains a vague, abstract, ethereal, mystical thing. Because one day, that kingdom of heaven is going to be expressed in the most concrete way that is imaginable. You just wait. You'll see it. You just wait. And you will be amazed at the concrete way that that kingdom is going to be manifested. No, there will not be a stone left unturned. 
to make visible and universal in the most public way and the most concrete way possible the vindication of God's King. From end to end of the earth, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now this is our hope. We Christians sometimes get, as we put it, too heavenly minded. Uh, I mean, we, we can never get too heavenly minded, but I, I mean by that the, a kind of, I should say this, too, too sort of ethereally minded. In other words, we somehow or other get the idea that the kingdom of, of to be heavenly minded is to sort of walk round in a daze. Walk round in a daze, you know, not the least bit practical. You just walk. There's nothing farther removed from the kingdom of heaven than that. My dear child of God, the kingdom of heaven means that you're intensely practical. Because the kingship of heaven comes into your life and starts to pull you up on all kinds of things so that far from it being a daze that you walk around in, you are actually being governed by heaven. You are being obedient to heaven. You know the king of heaven and the principles of the kingdom of heaven are being outworked in you, perhaps in a poor way, but nevertheless, there's a start being made upon the principles of the kingdom. come to this earth and it's going to be manifested uh, in the most practical way uh, imaginable. Every eye is going to see the king. Every eye. Now just imagine what that means. Every eye shall behold him and they also that pierced him shall wail because of him. That's something very very concrete. Now it says in the book of Revelation and chapter 6, it says that the kings of the earth and the great men and many others will go into the caves and, into the, and they will cry that the, the rocks and the boulders will fall upon them. Those men are not just spirits. They haven't lost their bodies. They're physical human beings. Yet they go into the depths of the earth somehow or other to hide from the face of the one that sits upon the throne. Now why? Because this kingdom of heaven is going to come in such a concrete way that unsaved flesh and blood will see and recognize Christ for who he is and what he is. That's how tangible and how concrete the kingdom of heaven is. Now, of course, at present, you can't see that. We are in the spiritual and heavenly reality. As yet, it has not been made visible. But don't, don't understand by that that the kingship of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, is to be something somehow or other vague now. Your life should be an embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. My life should be an embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. Our lives should be, wherever we go, bringing the kingdom of heaven into touch with people so that we can say, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. How is it upon you? It is upon you because it's in me. It's in you. That's why the apostles and later on the 70 were sent forth with the same message as John the Baptist and the same message as Christ. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is upon you, is at hand. In other words, right there, right upon you, at hand. You can just put your hand up and touch it. It's there. Now, just because the kingdom of heaven at present is invisible, 
though uh, a, a fact, uh, a factual reality, doesn't mean that you and I should not see it touch this world. That's our burden. We want to see the king move. We want to be together with the Lord Jesus Christ so that we see situations on this earth broken open by the power of heaven. We want to take the keys of the kingdom of heaven and unlock situations so that we unleash the power and authority of God upon human lives. Here is a life bound and chained in sin and we, the people of God, get on our knees and pray in an executive way and the chains are broken. Here is a person who finds he can't come to Christ. He wants to come to Christ, but he can't come to Christ. We can get on our knees and in the name of the Lord Jesus, we unlock the door. They can't. Oh, this, this pathetic idea amongst some Christians that God is sovereign without us. There are dear people who just are bound by evil and bound by spiritual principalities and powers, by spiritual things, spirits. They can't come through. Why does it say we are to go and gather out the stones? Why are we to make a highway for the people? Why are we to lift up an ensign that the nations can see? God could do it all, but he has left us to do something. That's the point. Our great clarion call is the kingdom of heaven is upon you. We as a company, every company of believers should really be a center from which the kingdom of heaven is, is, is declared and proclaimed and seen. Not just proclaimed as well, all of you, we are, we are looking for the kingdom that's coming. It's not just that. There's got to be an intuitive knowledge within men and women that the kingdom of heaven is there. A present reality. It is actually there amongst the people. This is why rebellion against the Lord is so serious a thing. It is why, in fact, when our lives, saved as they may be, are not owning the kingship of Jesus Christ, why God looks upon it as so serious a thing. For we've got into the kingdom through his salvation, but we contradict all his purpose by refusing to own his kingship. Thus we become the most miserable of all people. We're in the kingdom and not really in it. In it, yes, we are. And yet we're not enjoying it. So there we are, we become almost people who stop others from coming in. Because we say, Lord, Lord, and do not the things that he says. How serious that is. It is, you see, to this kingdom we belong by God's saving grace. It's, this is the kingdom that we are testifying and witnessing to. This is the kingdom in this, the gathering darkness of this world that we express. Why, before very long, dear children of God, we shall see the Antichrist. We shall see him. This man of sin will appear on the human scene. Already we see the gathering darkness. We see the forces. We see an apostate Christendom. We see a godless church. Why, if anyone wants to argue with me, I'll show you a, a, an article I got written by a theologian. And its title is, God is indeed dead. Written by a so-called Christian theologian. 
I've got the article. Isn't that incredible? An apostate church? A godless church, indeed. Become the very tool of the enemy. Why, we don't even evidently have to wait for communism to tell us that there is no God. We can now look to some theologians to tell us. Oh, what a facade of religion. What a form of godliness denying the power thereof. What, what wolves in sheep's clothing, truly. Well, all this we see coming upon us. And we, we who know the Lord, weak, unworthy, sinful creatures as we are, we, we are in the kingdom of heaven. In the gathering climax of the earth. We are to set forth another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, so that in these last days we proclaim and shall proclaim with our last breath that the, the, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We proclaim the final triumph of the kingdom of heaven. So in this way we are heralds of the kingdom. Heralds of the coming kingdom of the king of kings. Now that all leads me to say that if you want to condense everything we've said about this matter of the key to the gospel according to Matthew, then I think we can condense it into one verse in the gospel according to Matthew, and it is chapter 6 and, and verse 33, and it is the very well-known little word, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Oh, what a word. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What are all these things? Well, they're clothing and homes and possessions and what we eat and how we dress and all these things that worry us, all, the, all that belongs to the sphere and the realm of this earth. Now he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things shall be added unto you. Is it true? Well, it is true. There, then, is the condensed practical key to the book uh, of Matthew, to the gospel according to Matthew. Tell me, are you seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness? Are you really, really in your heart? What does it mean to seek his kingdom first? Well, it means that other things that were first go second and third and fourth and fifth. That his kingdom comes first. What is it that's first? Tell me, what would bring you to the brink of suicide this evening if it was taken from you? Because you can be quite sure that where your, where your heart is there, your treasure is also. Where your treasure is there, your heart lies also. Now I wonder, what is it? What is it? If the kingdom of heaven was taken from you, would that be the end of everything? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Well, there we are. May God give us grace, really, to know in our own experience something of the nature of the kingdom of heaven, and above all, to have a living, daily, practical relationship to the king.
There's no kingdom without the king. And this kingdom is nothing without the king. Well, now we will turn uh, for the rest of our time this evening to the outline of this uh, book. The gospel, according to Matthew, falls, as I see it, uh, not everyone else does, most naturally into four parts. I, I see it as falling quite naturally into four parts. There are one or two who would see it fall into three parts. There are some who would, fall, would, would, would cut it into, up into five parts. But I see it as most naturally and reasonably falling into four parts. Now, um, I, I'll turn it around in a moment. Uh, the four parts um, I see are first Matthew chapter 1. One, or perhaps I will put um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, to um, verse 11 of chapter 4, which I have entitled the Advent of God's King. The Advent of God's King. That is the coming of God's King. First four chapters. Then the next division, I see, is from verse 12 of chapter 4 to verse 12 of chapter 16, and I have entitled it The Proclamation of the Kingdom by the King. Now, nearly everyone who has divided Matthew has more or less uh, agreed with that. That division is general, uh, except for possibly uh, a verse here or there. And um, by that I mean some of them would go to 4.17 and then start at 4.18 and go Otherwise, it's, it's uh, materially the same division. But now we come to the difference. From the third uh, division I see in the Gospel according to Matthew is from verse 13 of chapter 16 to the end of chapter 25, which I have entitled The Realization of the Kingdom Through Calvary Alone. That is the bringing in of the kingdom, bringing it into reality through the cross, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus alone. And finally, the last division, the passion and triumph of God's King, Matthew chapter 26 to 28. Passion, by the way, is a word we use meaning the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I didn't like to use the word only the passion of God's King because it is not true. It is the passion and triumph of God's King because Matthew ends with that glorious chapter 28 where we see the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, this, as I see it, is the spiritual division of the gospel according to Matthew. Um, in other words, this is the key that we have to it, uh, to the outline of it, the advent of God's king, the proclamation of the kingdom by the king, the realization of the kingdom through Calvary alone. I did think of putting it this way, the realization of the kingdom through the king crucified, if that would help you. And the last division, the passion and triumph of God's um, king. However, before we actually look at the outline, I don't know how far we shall uh, get 
um, this evening, there are one or two points I would like to underline. We may not get farther than these points this evening, but I want to underline one or two points. Now, the first is this. In the outline that we are taking, we are not being analytical. In other words, although we are not just um, moving right over it uh, in, in an evening, we are not stopping to look at every single verse. The aim of these studies is to give you a bird's eye view of, um, of these books, to sort of look at it from above, uh, not get lost in all the detail down below. And although I'm afraid we do get involved in a lot of detail, our point is to try and move as swiftly as possible. So um, you will understand that. We are not going to um, deal with all the problems and all the difficulties in every part, but we will go over each of these sections and say what we will we'll draw out and underline the salient points in each of the uh, sections. Then another thing I want to say is this, that there are clearly discernible in the Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, um, five major discourses. There are five major discourses. Now, they're not there by accident. They are there by design. And these five um, discourses are all ended with a formula. Now, if you'll take your Bible, I want you to, to note this very carefully. Um, first of all, um, we've got um, chapter 7, verse 28. Chapter 7, verse 28. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these words. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these words. Now, if you turn over to um, 11, chapter 11, verse 1, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished commanding his 12 disciples. It came to pass when Jesus had finished again. Now, um, chapter 13, verse 53, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables. Same formula again, then chapter 19 verse 1, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished these words, and lastly chapter 26 verse 1, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these words. Now this little formula is not just a coincidence. Because this little formula, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished, so on, um, marks the termination of a large discourse. Now, almost three-fifths of the gospel according to Matthew is discourse. In fact, of all the gospels, it is the one that gives us the greatest amount of discourse material. That is the actual talks, discourses of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is not um, haphazard, it's not coincidental. The fact of the matter is that Matthew has deliberately, by this formula, pointed our, uh, as it were, um, uh, attracted our attention to the fact that within this gospel there are five discourses. Now, the five discourses are these. Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. 
from the beginning of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7, the principles of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 10, the proclamation or preaching of the kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 13, the understanding of the kingdom. Now, I've fallen out with quite a lot of others that I ought to be much more humble about, but I cannot for the life of me see why they all call chapter 13 the growth of the kingdom. Now, I understand it when it comes to the leaven, in that leaven of the whole lump, and I understand it when it comes to the mustard seed, and, of course, with the, te the tares and the wheat. Um, that's three of them. The other, got, the other parable is about the sower, and really is about the s more the, 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 the sower, I suppose, in one way, uh, than growth, but as you could say, it's to do with growth. But the last three parables are nothing to do with growth at all. The pearl, the treasure, and the dragnet. Nothing to do with growth. So I have felt that it would be right to call it the understanding of the kingdom, and I'm sure I'm right. <laughs> um, for this reason, that the Lord says three times in chapter 13, um, do you understand? First he says, to you it is being given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. At the very end he says, do you understand what I have said? And I feel there's a lovely comprehensive term, the understanding of the kingdom. Well, we, un we understand, how does the kingdom begin? The word of the kingdom is sown in our hearts. And then we understand about the, the problem of evil. How is it that we can live in this world and we who are walking with God suffer and those who don't walk with God sometimes are blessed and prospered? Why? And we can think of many other things. Oh, many, many other little problems. They're all there, I think, in this word, the understanding of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 18, the fellowship of the kingdom. That's one that gives us a little more of a headache than the others. The fellowship of the kingdom, I shall, when we come to it, I'll explain why. But I have entitled it the fellowship of the kingdom. Some have called it the community of the kingdom. I think it means the same thing, the fellowship of the kingdom. And then lastly, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the consummation of the kingdom. Well, that's clear to everyone, I think. It's about the Lord's coming again, the consummation of the kingdom. Now, these five main discourses are set within narrative material, which also contains some smaller discourses. The largest of them is Matthew 23, which is the woe to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you for scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's the largest piece of discourse out of these five. So we've got these five set in to narrative material. And we, uh, we find in this narrative uh, material that we have six portions. Now, that's the reason for this chart. I'm afraid I might block it out a bit for some of you. Um, here you've got the first portion of narrative material, chapters one to four. Then you go over to the, the first big discourse, chapter five to seven, principles of the kingdom. You come back. Chapters 8 and 9, narrative material. Back to chapter 10, proclamation of the kingdom. Back to chapters 11 and 12, narrative material. Back to chapter 13, the understanding of the kingdom. Back to chapters 14, 15, 16 and 17, narrative material. Back to chapter 18, fellowship of the kingdom. 
It's not a discourse. Back to chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23, narrative material. Back to chapters 24, 25, the consummation of the kingdom. Back to chapters 26, 27, 28, which is the climax. Now, these first four chapters and these last um, uh, two, three chapters are the introduction and the climax of the gospel. Then you have these five great discourses and the narrative material between them. Now that's more or less the way that the uh, gospel, the contents, we can describe the contents, the actual contents of the gospel according to um, Matthew. Now there are two interesting things. On the discourse side, we have this little formula, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished. 728, 11-1, 13-53, 19-1, 26-1. In each case, they finish, they terminate the discourse and start the narrative material. They are the sign that the narrative is continuing again. It's there by design. But even more interesting, on the narrative side, there are two, there's a two major turning points in the biography of the Lord Jesus, if you like. The biographical narrative. This we can call a terrible word, didactical. That is teaching. This side is biographical in one sense. It is the narrative of the Lord's doings, his ministry and his life. Now, we have two major turning points each marked by the formula, um, chapter 4, verse 17. Now, what is that formula? It's gone from my mind. Uh, when Jesus, from that time, began Jesus. From that time began Jesus to preach. 4.17, chapter 16, verse 21. Um, from that time began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and the third day be raised again. Now this again is a very interesting formula, because it means that when we reach chapter 4, 17, we have reached the first great turning point in the Lord's ministry. When from that time he began to preach, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we come to 1621, we've reached the second great turning point from which, as it were, the Lord set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. And from that time began Jesus to tell his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem. He must uh, be crucified and buried and be raised on the third day. Now, that is just a little bit about the contents of um, this gospel. Now, there are one or two other points I'd like to um, um, make uh, about the outline of the Gospel. One is this. I want you to note the way in which Christ slowly, almost imperceptibly at first, then more and more clearly unfolds the way to the kingdom. Calvary. It is most impressive if you take the gospel according to Matthew, the very first time the Lord Jesus spoke of his death is in chapter 16. In fact, it goes back to what we've just been saying. Chapter 16, verse 21. From that time began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised up. 
Now chapter 17, verse 9. Verse 9, chapter 17, verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Then, um, verse um, 12. Verse 12, same chapter. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but did unto him whatsoever they would, even so shall the Son of Man also suffer of them. Then, um, chapter... Uh, the same chapter, verse 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be delivered up into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised up. And they were exceeding sorry. For the first time, I think it began to really sink in. Chapter 20, verse 18. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him unto the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he shall be raised up. That is the fullest explanation he gave to them. Then verse 28. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Chapter 26, verse 2. Ye know that after two days the Passover cometh, and the Son of Man is delivered up to be crucified. Verse 12. For in that she poured this ointment upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Verse 31. Then saith Jesus un unto them, All ye shall be offended in me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And then verse 46, Arise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that betrayeth me. You've got this amazing sort of movement. Now, in the first um, half of the Gospel, up to the chap up chapter 16, you will hardly notice any real reference to the uh, death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not reveal it to his disciples, but from the, that point onward, from chapter 16, verse 21, he starts to unfold the way that to the kingdom, which is through the cross. Then another thing I'd like you also to note is the way, the slow way, in which the disciples came to see who Christ was and what was his work. We find that in Matthew chapter 14, the very first time that they realized who he was. Chapter 14, verse 33. And they that were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. That is the first time that it dawned upon them uh, who he was. Thou art the Son of God. You turn over the pages to chapter 16 and the famous occasion uh, when Peter said to the Lord in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's really only at the very end, when you come to chapter 28, that you really, be, I think they really discovered who Christ 
was. Chapter 28, and uh, you've got it, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then, of course, verse 16, But the eleven disciples went into Galilee, unto the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and spake unto them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Here again, you've got the slow way in which the disciples recognized who Christ was and what he was. Now, one, another point I'd like to make is this. Um, one of Matthew's favorite approaches is to contrast acceptance with rejection or unbelief with belief, faith with belief, or sympathy with opposition. He's always contrasting the two things side by side. Now, you've got an example of that. If you, I'll give you just a few examples from literally hundreds um, in Matthew. First of all, Matthew chapter 2. You've got it, the contrast between the wise men and Herod. First of all, you have these great men from the east. Well, they're not kings, according to the scripture, but we'll go into that uh, if we get to not probably this evening. But these great personalities from the East, they come, they worship the babe, and they offer gifts, which is a tribute to the king. But on the other side, we have the king, Herod, and he is so filled with anger that he massacres all the children under two years of age in Bethlehem. So in one passage you have the contrast. Here are the men, the Gentiles and these who worship the, the, the babe. And here is the so-called king, Herod, and he seeks to destroy uh, the babe. Now if you go on, you'll find it all the way through. For instance, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 to 14. We can't read it all, but you'll have to look at it. And you'll find there that the story is of a man healed and the Pharisees. On the one side you have a man who's healed, and on the other side you have the hatred of the Pharisees. You have it in two occasions there, Matthew 12, 9 to 14, and also again in verses 22 to 24. Then you've got the same contrast with Peter. First of all, you've got him in chapter 16, verse 16, 17, saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the next minute he says, Be it far from thee. And the Lord says, Get thee behind me, Satan. You have an amazing contrast within the same few verses, first of Peter in the spirit, and then Peter in the flesh. One moment he says, flesh and blood has not revealed that to thee, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven, the next minute he says, get thee behind me, Satan. An amazing contrast. None of the others quite, none of the other Gospels quite bring it out like that. Then you have the disciples and Jesus contrasted. Chapter 14, um, verse 15. This is very much like all of us. Verse 40, chapter 14, verse 15. When even was come, the disciples came to him, saying, The place is desert, the time is already past. Send the multitudes away, uh, that, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Here's the contrast. But Jesus said unto them, They have no need to go away. Give ye them to eat. And then we, the contrast between the disciples 
and Jesus. Then we have the contrast between the crowd and Jesus. Another example, Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verse 31. The multitude rebuked them, the two blind men. The multitude rebuked them that they should hold their peace. But they cried out the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, thou son of David. Verse 34, And Jesus, being moved with compassion, touched their eyes. The crowd contrasted with Jesus. The crowd says, Shut up. And the Lord Jesus says, What will you have me do? An amazing contrast. You don't get it in the other Gospels. So like us. And then in chapter 21, and verse 14 and 15 again, we have the chief priest contrasted with Jesus. The, the, chapter 21, verse 14 and 15, here we have it. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children that were crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were moved with indignation. A contrast. This is deliberate. Matthew deliberately contrasts the two. Acceptance, rejection. Sympathy, opposition. Faith, unbelief. You find it in the very last chapter, chapter 28, the last example I give to you of it, when we have these words, chapter 28, from uh, verse 1, to 10, we can't read it, but you know the story, from verse 1 to 10, we have the story of faith. The women actually worship the Lord as they uh, meet him risen from the dead. There you have the worship of faith. And then in verse 11 to 15, you have the deceit of unbelief or the deceit of disbelief. And the story there is of the gods being bribed by the chief priest to spread the story that his body was stolen from the tomb. So Matthew in the very last chapters contrasts the same thing, the worship of faith, the deceit of disbelief together. All the time he's contrasting. Now the only other point I wish to make about the outline is this, that the main part of Matthew is set in Galilee. So that really, if you want to apportion it, you, we have to say that from chapter 1 to 4, roughly, is in Judea. From chapter 4 to the end of chapter 18 is in Galilee. And from chapter 19 to chapter 28 is back in Judea, mostly in Jerusalem, except for the last few verses from 16, chapter 28, verse 16 to 20, which is Galilee. So, in fact, the uh, gospel, according to Matthew, ends in Galilee. Now, we have only um, seven minutes. And what we will do in that seven minutes, I think we will just take the first section of this, um, of this outline, the advent of God's King. I can't do it all, but what I can do is this. We can look at the genealogy of the King. Genealogy of the King. Now we've got the advent of the king, and the first point I want to make here is the genealogy of the king, the first 17 verses of Matthew. Now if you'll just open your gospel according to Matthew at chapter 1 and keep those 17 verses in front of you. Here's a good point where we can end. Now I expect most of you have found these 17 verses very boring. I would be very interested if you were absolutely honest 
and want to tell me just what you feel about these 17 verses. They're filled with unpronounceable names. And most people, I think, would find them rather boring. But this genealogy, tracing the legal line through Joseph to Abraham, condenses the whole of the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 12 to Malachi chapter 4. It condenses the whole of the Old Testament, literally, except for the first 11 chapters of the Bible, the whole of the Old Testament is comprehended and condensed in a few names. But I'll tell you something more. It's not only the whole of the Old Testament that is condensed into these names, but the 400 so-called silent years are also condensed into these few names as well. So that in fact we have here in this series of unpronounceable names the whole of the Old Testament. Thus it becomes the most fitting introduction to the Gospel according to Matthew. Christ is seen as the sum of the Old Testament. He's seen as the focal point of the whole history of God's people. For remember that the chosen nation began with Abraham, not Adam, began with Abraham. Abraham was the father of the children of Israel. He was the great founder of the Israel of God, the covenant people. So we go back to Abraham, as it were, and we discover really at the very beginning of this gospel that Christ is the sum of it all. He is the focal point of all that history. Thousands of years of human history summed up in these few names. How little we realize what lies behind those names. But in actual fact, behind that long list of names lies all the stories in your Old Testament. All of them are found in those names. Because they are the actual names of the royal line going back to David and then beyond David to Abraham. When Matthew presents Christ, he presents him as the Messiah King. The promised seed of Abraham, the son of David, the rightful legal long-promised Messiah. Now, don't forget that. It's not just simply, he's not simply presented to us as king. He is presented to us as the Messiah king. The one who was promised at the very beginning to Abraham, in thy seed shall all the nations be blessed. And he was told that it would be, it, it would be to his seed that the promises would finally be given and fulfilled. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now all this is very wonderful when you think of it, you say, because it really means that Christ is the long-promised Messiah King. Then again, you remember all the Psalms and much else in the Word of God about the, the one who would reign upon the throne of David, who would sit upon the throne of David, of the seed of David's body that would be raised up and would sit forever upon the throne of David. All this is bound up and condensed, as it were, in this genealogy. Christ's appearing is not some coincidental appearing on the human scene. Some great personality God chooses to use as a kind of afterthought. He is the fulfillment 
of all the promises in the Old Testament, all the promises made to these people we have here, and many others that lived during the reign or during the lifetime of the names that we have here. Christ is the fulfillment of all those promises. He is the fulfillment of the covenant that was made with Abraham and then later with Moses and the people and then later with David. He is the fulfillment of that covenant. All its predictions and prophecies point to him. The whole of its history centers in him. Its laws and its types all foreshadow him. Christ in his own person, his offices, his kingdom, his work, his glory is the very meaning of the Old Testament. And that's why we have the gospel according to Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament and the first verses of the gospel according to Matthew are a genealogy that comprehend the whole story of the Old Testament. It's as simple as that. In, in, under the guise of these names, Christ is set before us as the sum of the whole Old Testament. Now, some of you say, well, wouldn't it have been simpler for God just to have said that? <laughs> Dispense with all these unpronounceable names and just say, Christ is the sum. But that's not the point. Matthew is at great pains to point out that Christ is the legal, rightful, long-promised Messiah King. And he does it in the way that only a Jew could do. He gives the pedigree and says, here you are, here is the actual pedigree of the king. Here is the, 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 the lineage of the Messiah. Here is the royal seed. Here it is. I put it down. No one can, no one can charge us with, with, with inaccuracy. Now, it is an extremely interesting point that no one ever did. No Jew has ever actually um, charged this genealogy or the one in, in Luke with being inaccurate. It has been accepted. Why? Because here we've got the legal, rightful pedigree of the king. So no one can argue about that. But we have to just say something more about this. I think we have to say that the son of David, we've got here in the first verse, the son of David, the son of Abraham, if we look at this first verse, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, we bring these together, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now just think, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Go back to your Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. We, this is the book of the generations of the heaven and earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In other words, it was the beginning of not only the pedigree, but the actual narrative of how these things came into being. It was a beginning, a generation. Now we have here at the beginning of the New Testament, this is the book, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now what can we say? Well, I think we have here the suggestion that Christ is the beginning of the new Israel. Ah, Abraham. Abraham, the father of all those who believe. Christ is the beginning of the new Israel. So Christ chooses 12 apostles over against 12 patriarchs. 
It is the new Israel that Christ has come to found. It is the everlasting kingdom of God that is being brought in by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't go back to Adam. We go back to Abraham, the father of all who believe, the father of the covenant people. It is the new Israel that Christ has come to found. And then, of course, if we think of uh, David, then we have the beginning of the true kingdom. You see, David was the first king that God wanted. Saul was man's idea of a king. But with King David, the kingdom really began as far as God was concerned. For it says God sought him a man after his own heart. And I think you all know that Samuel is a great turning point in Old Testament history. That's when um, the people became a kingdom. Saul was a mistake. He was a man of the flesh. God put him away. But David was the picture of the Lord Jesus, the man after God's own heart. And so we have it here, I think, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the new Israel, the beginning of the true kingdom of God. Why else? Oh, I think that when we look at it like that, it starts to make a little bit of sense. And then you see another little point I might make is this. You've got three groups of generations here, three groups of 14 generations. And everyone agrees, even the London Bible College, that these 14 generations are artificially arranged. In other words, there weren't actually 14 generations. They're artificially contrived. That means that um, Matthew uses the old rabbinical method of reducing to an easily memorized number. 14, 14, 14. 14, 14, 14. Now, if you want proof for, for this, I'll give it to you afterwards. I'll show you some of the kings that are not in the list. We know they were there. We know that his pedigree goes through it. They're left out deliberately in order to arrange 14, 14, 14. Now that's interesting because we have 42. And as I pointed out to you in, these, in the introduction to the Gospel according to Matthew, why 42? Well, it is again very interesting because the only 42 we have in the Bible, and it, is it being fanciful? I'm not so sure it is being fanciful. Because you see, Matthew uses a rabbinical method. And the rabbis love this kind of thing. Therefore, I'm quite sure that there's probably more than a little design in this. If you look at Numbers 33, you will find that there are exactly 42 stages between leaving Egypt and getting into the Promised Land. And Jesus is Joshua. I think you all know that. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And so we have the 42 stages. What, is, what, is, uh, what really is Matthew trying to say? He's trying to say, listen, the whole of the Old Testament story from Abraham has been a wandering in the wilderness until our Joshua has come. Now our Joshua has come. Jesus, Jehovah is the Savior. Jehovah is salvation. And he's going to take us over to possess the kingdom. We're going over with our Joshua to possess the kingdom for the Lord. The saints shall go in and shall possess the kingdom, said Daniel. Well, is it fanciful? Think about it and go back to Numbers 33 and count up the stages and just see. And then think about the name Jesus, Joshua, and just see whether you think, 
Why has he reduced it to three groups of 14? Why do those three 14s uh, come to 42? What is the idea? If he's not comprehending the whole of Old Testament history and saying in his rather rabbinical manner, now then, you Jewish believers, you Hebrew Christians, just you remember that your history has been a journey from stage to stage to stage to stage in a weary desert. But you've not come into the kingdom, have you? You're under a foreign yoke. You're under the Roman yoke. You've not come into the kingdom. But now comes Jesus, God's Joshua. Jehovah is the Savior. And he's going to lead you over into the kingdom of heaven and into your possession of it. And then I just want you to note in closing the phrase in um, verse, um, the phrase in verse 16, phrase in verse 16, of whom was born Jesus? Of whom was born Jesus? Now I want you to note that. People say to us, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? I most certainly do. Our whole salvation depends upon the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And woe betide anyone who thinks it doesn't. Once we have thrown away the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus, we have thrown away his sinlessness. And when we have thrown away his sinlessness, we have thrown away our salvation. The whole eternally legal structure of our everlasting salvation is resting upon the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is it not interesting that right through this um, genealogy we have so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, Joseph begat Jesus. No. It does not say Joseph begat Jesus. This is what it says. It says Jacob begat Joseph of uh, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Joseph, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom, that is Mary, was born Jesus Christ. Now it is very interesting that it doesn't say by Mary. It doesn't say uh, uh, jo Jacob begat Joseph, Joseph begat Jesus by Mary. Now you say, ah, but it means the same thing. It doesn't. If you look at verse 3, you will see this. Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Now Tamar was a prostitute, a Gentile prostitute. So we've got by Tamar. Then in verse 6 we have, and, uh, uh, and David begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. You see? Another lady is mentioned. Then if you look at verse 5, you've got, and Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab, or by Rahab, another uh, sinner. Now why doesn't it say, and, Jacob begat, uh, and Joseph begat Jesus by Mary? Why does Matthew deliberately use this different way? He says, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus Christ. Well, of course, a little later on in the next section, the birth and conception of the Lord Jesus, we read in verse um, 20, 
For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Here then we have this very, very important point that the genealogy whilst tracing the legal line through Joseph clearly points out to us that the Lord Jesus Christ was not born of Joseph but was born of the Spirit of God, conceived of the Spirit of God and born through Mary, the wife of Joseph, the betrothed fiancée, in a sense, of, of Joseph. And the last point I want to make is one that I've already just mentioned in passing. Matthew mentions five women in the genealogy and he is the only one who does. Luke doesn't mention a single woman, although actually Luke is known to be the writer, the gospel writer, who is most interested in uh, the ladies. He's the one who records more about the ladies, the details about the ladies than any of the others, because of his compassionate interest in, in uh, mankind. But Matthew, in his genealogy, is the one who mentions five women. And you know, four of those five were Gentiles. Mary was the only Jewess. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And three of those Gentiles were notorious sinners, harlots. Rahab, Tamar, and, well, Bathsheba, I don't think we could call her a harlot, but she certainly is known for her sin. Now, why do you think Matthew makes a point? For after all, there were so many dear godly women. He doesn't mention the very godly women. He mentions the women who've been notorious for their sin, yet have, have, have repented. I think it's because... He wants to point out to us, deliberately, that this Messiah King has come for the salvation of all sinners, and Gentiles as well. And that even in his pedigree, there is a glimmer, a foreshadowing of the work of the Messiah King to bring the Gentiles into the salvation of God. Well, may the Lord help us, and if he will, we'll carry on really looking at the outline next week properly. Now, dear Lord, we do pray that thou wouldst help us to understand something of this. Oh, dear Lord, we do need thy help. But we do thank that thou art with us to help us. And we pray together, beloved Lord, that by thy Spirit... Thou wouldst help us all to understand these things and to learn of thee and, to, and above all to know thee as king in our lives. And we ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.